ready to start our 10th lesson uh, in the book of Nehemiah. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, you'll be in the right spot. We're in chapter 9 today. Actually, we're going to do 9 and 10. We're going to bust ahead. But I wanted to ask if you have been paying attention uh, to the revival that started in uh, February in the, in the uh, school of Ashbury, Ashbury University in Kentucky. Anybody following along on that? All right. So you know that I think it was the uh, f February 8th, they had a regular scheduled chapel service. And uh, when the chapel service was over and the kids were supposed to, you know, scatter, go to class and so on, some of them lingered. And when they lingered, there was uh, a, a guy with a guitar and I don't know the details of how many were there, but, but some lingered. And a little bit later that afternoon, the, the, um, as I read about it, the dean of the school sent out a, a text message to all the students. And this is, it was a very simple message. This is what he said. There's worship happening in Hughes Auditorium, which was the auditorium. You're welcome to join. So there was no, let's all gather, no big woo wah woo -ah. It was just a very simple, hey, there's worship happening in the, in the chapel. Uh, you're welcome to join. And that unbelievable nonstop worship, confession of sin, uh, activities of all kinds that were going on in that, you know, people were getting up and giving some messages, but these weren't, you know, scholarly 40-year uh, pastors that, you know, these were just the kids grabbing a Bible and saying, boy, God showed me this verse this morning or showed me that. It went from the 8th to the 24th nonstop. And uh, at some point, the college said so many thousands of people were driving over there to try to get in and see what was going on that the little city collapsed. They had no, you know, no hotels, nowhere for people to eat. They were, you know, getting porta potties from all over the state. It had just become a, a logistical nightmare, and they had to cut it off, much to the students' dis dislike. They said they could continue it in another location, but they had to restore some sort of order. What happened then, though, is other colleges of broken out. Samford University, Cedarville did, the School of uh, the Northern, or University of Cumberland, and, and across the country. Now, what, what made me think about that in, in the start of our lesson is the, these two chapters continue on, on, on this great attitude that the people of Israel had once they were in, once the wall was built, once the temple was up, once Ezra was trying to get the, the, the routine of worship going, something very miraculous starts happening when people get serious with God. It's true on a personal level. It's true on a corporate level. When an individual decides to get serious with God, things start happening. We were talking about cataract surgery a moment ago. And one of the things they say is when you get the cataract surgery, the colors are more vivid. Well, when you get serious with God, life becomes more vivid. And you can do it as an individual. You can do it as a church. And certainly in various periods in our, in our history, both the American history and history around the world, revivals have broken out in, in, a, in an astonishing way. And that's what's really going to happen. A couple of days after the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is where we left it in chapter 8, a couple of days later, the Israelites are, are gathering and they're getting serious now about their worship of Yahweh. And a, and a revival is about to break out. As, as you read through chapter 9 and chapter 10, you're going to see kind of a four-step thing that happens. So first step is they all have broken hearts. They look around and say, boy, this has not been going well. We need to do better. 
A second step happens, they reflect on the goodness of God. In light of what God has done for us, boy, we ought to get our act together. And then in the third step, what happens is that that, that, that sharpness, that vividness starts to go inside of them and they see, see all the sin that's there. It has to be dealt with and they confess it. And then the fourth step is there's kind of a renewal of obedience. They say, we're not going to do it this way anymore. We're going to obey. We're going we're to put in practice the things we know that should be in practice. So in chapter 9, starting with verse number 1, let me just have a sip here. Mm. There we go. It says, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law, the, uh, the law of the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day, and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. And then standing on the stairs were the Levites, and he gives the, the, the names of them. Towards the end of it, he says, And stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, the thing that I wanted you to see is what's, what's going on in the preparation of their hearts, what's happening to get them ready to, to receive whatever it is God has for them. The first thing is they were reading scripture for a quarter of the day. Now, in chapter 8, they read it out loud from 6 in the morning till noon. A quarter of the day would be a little bit of a shorter period of time. And, and, and the thing is, even that, let's say it was two hours or three hours. Three hours would probably be a decent estimate. Uh, maybe four. But if, if you were asked to stand, to everybody stand up and we're not, I'm going to now read for the next three hours, there's not going to be a very happy crowd out here in our, in our society. In their society, there was not a blink. But I was, I was going to look and wonder how long it actually would take you or I to do some reading. So I did a little bit of research, and here's what, the, what they're saying. You could read the book of Ezra, which I've asked you to do. I think there's 13 chapters there. Then we read the book of Ezra in 40 minutes. That's less than one television show. You could read the book of Ezra. The book, the book of Obadiah, you could read it in four minutes. In the book of Titus, New Testament, seven minutes. Seven minutes. That's how long it takes you to get around the, you know, the ring here to drop your kids off. The whole book of Nehemiah, 60 minutes, one hour. Now, you know, the average person watches three hours a night of TV. So in three hours, what? The whole New Testament? No, maybe not, but close. The book of Revelation can be read in an hour and a half. So those of us that do the, well, you know, I'm busy. Really? You spend seven minutes in the restroom. <laughs> right? You can knock off Titus like that. Obadiah, some of those short and minor prophets. Woo! I'm being funny, but I am trying to say the preparation for their hearts began with the scripture being read. The second thing was fasting. Now, I want to ask you to raise your hand, but... Fasting in the Bible is, is one of what I'll call three secrets. In the, in, the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, there are three things that are discussed as being done in private or secretly, not on show for everybody else. One of them is giving, the other one is prayer, and the third one is, is fasting. Every time it's mentioned in the Bible, especially when Jesus is doing the talking, he assumes they're fasting. <laughs> 
So for example, in Matthew 6.16, when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast, do this and this. And in, nine, in Matthew 9.15, he doesn't say that his disciples might fast. He affirms that they will. And again, in our culture, there's not a lot of fasting. Now, fasting can take any form, lots of different ways, but 70 different times in our Bible, we're told to fast. It's assumed that we do. So it could be one whole day without food. It could be um, a pastor friend of mine, the entire time he was in college, because he wasn't sure what God wanted him to do, he did not eat until after sundown every day. So for the entire time he was in college, he just fasted until sundown, had a dinner meal, and that was it. You could, you could fast uh, from certain things. You could fast from certain activities. You could give up television and fast from TV, for example. It doesn't really matter, although in the scriptures it's referring to food. But the idea is that you say to yourself, no, I'm going to say no to me. And in the process of saying no to me, it's an opportunity to say yes to God. The, a couple of quotes I put in your notes. The first one by uh, Nadia Thomas. She says, uh, Biblical fasting should not be considered a method for dieting, but a method for growing into deeper communion with God and being more in tune with His Spirit. The primary biblical reason to fast is to take our eyes off the things of the flesh and to open our eyes to the things of God. And then John Piper says, Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of a homesickness for God. Christian fasting is not only the spontaneous effect of superior satisfaction in God, but also a chosen weapon against every force in the world that would take that satisfaction away. Do you hunger for God like you were homesick? Perhaps fasting could help you achieve that, that mindset, that attitude. Fasting is an amazing thing. Um, I knew very little about it uh, until a few years ago. I am a novice at it. I claim no, uh, you know, uh, I'm the pro. But I will tell you that fasting has become an important part of the disciplines of my life. And not as a diet, but as an opportunity to say no to self and say yes to God. Because for an example, um, the other day, uh, I won't tell you how I was fasting, but I was fasting and I, I ended up being hungry. And I don't like being hungry. I'm just like everybody else. When I'm hungry, I want to eat. And, and I had that, that sensation of, you know, the bologna sandwich, here I come, you know. And all of a sudden I said, no, I'm supposed to be fasting here today. And I, I like I was having a, a conversation with myself in the car. No, I said no. I, no, we're not eating. No, I'm telling me no. There's a lot of good in telling yourself no, not just for the purposes of fasting, but that process of being able to self-control, being able to say no to any number of things, any number of habits that are not good, any number of attitudes that are not good. When you can look in the mirror and, and look at yourself and say, no, we're not, we're no. That's a good thing. And preparing their hearts, they were into God's word, they were fasting, they wore sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is not part of our culture either. Um, I'm one of those, I'm like what those kids, um, what's the term, OCD, yeah. You know, and if the, the label on the back of their, their, their blouse or shirt is itchy, they're gonna go crazy the whole day grabbing at it. I'm, I'm exactly like that. If the label on my new blouse is bugging me 10 minutes after I'm, I'm running around trying to get somebody to cut it out. 
I don't, it's bothering me. So sackcloth, I wouldn't last long. But it was a garment that was, that was rough, usually off of a goat. The underneath part of the goat is very rough and coarse. And they would wear it for various purposes. One of them was to show they were mourning when they lost someone. They would put on sackcloth. Or if they were showing, um, you know, uh, they were submitting themselves to a ruler or an, a new owner or a new business partner kind of thing, they would put sackcloth on as a, as a way of showing deference, a way of, of saying there's some self-humiliation here. Sometimes prophets wore them. In the, in the Bible, I could put a couple of references for you. One of them is in First um, Kings 20, and the king of, uh, of Amron was coming around, and he was needing help from the, the king of Israel. And, and he put a bunch of sackcloth on before he went into that meeting, just to say, hey, I, I show deference to you. Um, Hezekiah, when he was going into the temple, he put sackcloth on. Again, just for the purposes of to say to God, hey, you're in charge. I'm not. I'm going to put this stuff on. It's a way to, again, a way to say no. A way to say no to your own comforts in the case of the sackcloth. Now, these people also put dust on their heads. Now, most of us like to have clean hair, you know, and a shower every now and then, and maybe a bubble bath thrown in there, and whatever, whatever. But in their day and age, they would, as a sign of, say, grief or mourning again, they would take dirt and throw it in the air and let it fall on them. So there was dust on their head. In, uh, in Job, uh, when the friends are showing up and, and Job's very sad, they, they, there was some, some dirt on their head. And then when the Ninevites were believing in God and Jonah, Jonah hated the idea that the Ninevites were going to come to know Christ, or come to know Yahweh as an impersonal relationship. And when they finally did, one of the signs that the people were showing, Jonah and others, that they were you know, submitting to God was throwing some dust up on their hair. And one of the writers said, we are so troubled by our sin when we do this, that normal comforts of life are unimportant unimportant. We choose to make ourselves uncomfortable. We choose to be in a, in a chair that's not that comfy. I fell asleep in my, my fancy chair this morning. You know, I get out of bed, I get set up, I get my stuff ready to read, and, and about 20 minutes later I went, whoa, what happened here? Yes. That was not a reading moment, that was a snoring moment. I mean, when, when you go to have your devotions, you do like I do, comfy chair, cup of coffee, feet up, lanky on. Well, the suggestion of several of these things is to, to purposefully and meaningfully allow yourself to be uncomfortable so that your attention can be put on him, not on, ah, isn't this nice? So dust on the head. The other thing they did is they separated themselves from all foreigners. And when I was reviewing this last night, I thought, oh, I need to make a point here. We're not talking about how we deal with immigrants here. This is, not, this is not a political statement for what we should do, uh, the wall or the fence or, you know, immigration policies. This has nothing to do with that. When he says foreigners, he's just saying those who do not, who do not come from Israel, who not normally worship Yahweh. So these are, these are outsiders to the, to the spiritual camp. And, and they separated themselves from them. They, they moved to a side. I want you to see this in Joshua. Turn to the book of Joshua. Back towards the front, Joshua judges Ruth. So Joshua 23, and I'll show you an example of this. Put my glasses on so I can actually read it. 23, 7. <clears throat> 
So Joshua is getting ready to fade off the scene. He's been the leader of Israel, brought him into the promised land. Verse number seven, he's giving a, a, a series of things to do and not do. Verse six, he says, be very strong, be very careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. And then verse seven, do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. So when, when in our passage, uh, the children of Israel have separated themselves from the foreigners, they're saying, we're not going to be like them. They worship false gods. We're not going to take on one of those false gods and, and start worshiping it. They have different ways of living. We're not going to associate with them. We're going to come out from among them, as the New Testament might say, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. That's what 2 Corinthians 6, 7, and 8 says. And I've said this to you guys a lot of times. If you were having a party in your backyard, does that party look exactly the same as every other party that's happened in your neighborhood? If it does, you have not come out from among them and been separate. There's nothing different about the way you live your life. If you just look like every other house on the, on the block, if your kids sound just like every other kid on the block, if your husband, you know, swears just like, a, or you, just like everybody on the block, there's a problem. Um... In Ephesians 5.11, it says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of, of darkness. There should be a difference about the way we live our lives. Can you go to lunch with a friend without having a glass of wine? And if the answer is no, that might be a small problem. Not because you're an alcoholic, but because you've matched up to our culture. Women don't go out to lunch without having a glass of wine. Well, I go out to lunch without having a glass of wine. So can you. Does it, is anything wrong with having a glass of wine? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying don't be like everybody else. We don't have to match up. We don't have to do the same activities. We don't have to have the same entertainment. We don't have to discipline our kids the same way. We don't love our husbands the same way. There should be a difference. If your garage goes up and you and your husband and I are having a conversation, it should be a different kind of conversation than down the street. There should be no screaming and hollering. You're following me? That doesn't mean that you never scream and holler. Of course you do sometimes. But there should be a come out from among them and be separate. We're setting standards for ourselves. It's just like my dad used to say, I don't care what the other kids in the neighborhood are doing. You're a whirl. And whirls don't do that. And I used to resent that as a child. Well, it's like the Holy Spirit says, hey, you're mine. And we don't do that. Whatever that is. Again, nothing wrong with a glass of wine. Please don't go home and say, Sherry says we can't have any wine anymore. <laughs> One of my other Bible studies, the lady the other day was complimented by someone on their outfit. And she said, yeah, it's an old one. Sherry says, I can't go shopping anymore. I did not say that. <laughs> I did not say that. Any more than I said, you can't have a, wine, a cup of glass of wine with your friends. I'm just saying that they were separating themselves from our foreigners as a, an action to show what was going on in their heart. And we have to be different, not, not totally different. No, we're, not, we're not wearing sackcloth and ashes and, and living on a hilltop with, in, in teepees, but we, we should have an attitude, a voice, a structure, a behavior that sets us apart. The sixth thing they did is they made confessions. <coughs> Excuse me. Turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 5, towards the end of your Bible. James 5. They made confessions. What is this all about? James chapter 5 and verse number 16. 
So he's talking about a prayer, a prayer of faith. And um, verse 15 says, The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will rise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins. Note, note who we're supposed to confess them to. What does the next phrase say? To each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. And then the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Make confessions. Confess your sins one to another. Now, those of us that have a Roman Catholic background, we're very familiar with going to confession and confessing our sins to, to the priests. But this passage is saying, in the, in the way that the church is set up, small c, my church, your church, any church, the way the church is set up, there's supposed to be relationships among those church people that are so real that when we're having difficulty with something in our lives, we can go and say, Kate, I'm having a difficult time with my mouth. I am, I am, I'm saying some language I'm not proud of. Listen, will you pray with me now and hold me accountable? Every morning I want you to text and ask me how I'm doing. That's the confessing we're talking about. It's not to sit down like, like we used to in Catholic Church and, and do that formal ritual. It's a relational thing. It's an openness with each other. It's an authenticity with each other. I'm having some trouble with X. Anybody else having trouble with that? Great. Let's hold each other accountable. Or a close friend or your husband or even your children. Oh my goodness, your kids will hold you so accountable, it's not funny. But this, this confession, what it does is it breaks the power of secret sin. In Psalm 32, when David was, was confessing about Bathsheba, that's one of the things that he brings out, is it breaks the power of secret sin. When we hide our sin, when we think nobody knows, all it does is eat at us. It just eats us alive whether it's a little thing or a big thing. Why do, why do addicts and other people with addictions go in a group setting and the first thing they do is confess, hi, I'm Sherry and I'm an addict. Because they know the power of that openness. It's not a secret anymore. You're not hiding it from your family or your, or your business. It's out there. Confession cultivates a, a, an atmosphere of honesty and purity in a relationship. One of, the, one of the things that, that will become true as we draw nearer and nearer to God, we will get nearer and nearer to people. And in that, in that closeness comes a spirit of authenticity and a willingness to say, I do not have it all together. I'm struggling with that or this. Or would you please pray with me about this attitude? Or I'm losing it with my kids and I don't want to. Can you pray with me about it? Can I call you about the time that I'm losing it with my kids? You know, that golden hour between five and seven every night. You know, shall we call each other for a quick, quick tune up at about, you know, 527 and make sure that we're both still showing some patience with our kids? Whatever it takes, they were confessing. Now imagine this huge crowd, they're turning to each other. You know, I'm having a real trouble. Well, I'm having a real trouble. Well, I'm, what, what are you having a real trouble with? What are you having a real trouble with? And it's happening all over the crowd. Secret sins no more. And I threw in one last thing. I wanted you to look at 1 Timothy, back just a couple of books. Speaking of uh, confession in the Catholic Church, I wanted you to see this one verse in 1 Timothy chapter um, 2. Verse number five, 1 Timothy 2, 5. 
He's talking about how to worship and what kinds of things are supposed to be happening. And then he says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. We don't have to have somebody run into the throne room of God on our behalf. We get to go directly into the throne room of God and either worship or adore or ask for forgiveness. It's a direct line. It's the it's the the access that we got because of the what Christ did on the cross. When that robe was torn from the top to the bottom, you remember the things that happened on the day of the of the crucifixion. One of them was that the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the most holy place being only a, a place that the high priest could go once a year. That veil got ripped from the top to the bottom as a sign to everyone. Hey, come on in. No more do you have to have a mediator of a high priest. It is ripped from top to bottom. And it was written why it was from top to bottom. If it had been bottom to top, it would have been man doing something to, to gain access. But because it was ripped from top to bottom, it was God saying, no more. You just come on in. Let's talk about it. Let's get it done. Whatever it is. So they made confessions. And then they started worshiping. I thought it was kind of interesting as I was thinking about this word that shows up in chapter 9 for worship uh, and all the other words in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament that, that uh, are translated worship. You know, some of them, and I, I put down some, just a few in your notes, like halil is meaning to praise, almost to rave, a, 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 a frenzy of, of, of activity, to boast about God. Yada means show me. It's a, it's a way of showing me. If, if we were doing that in an English context, English language context, we might say, raise your hands. Or put your hand over your mouth. Or whatever the, the physicalness might be. Kneel. You know, lay down prostate. Or, uh, prostrate. Not prostate. Prostrate. Uh, some, some physical way to show the worship. Uh, Tada means to give a, a sacrifice of praise. So something that you've sacrificed to bring in. Uh, Shabak means to soothe or to boost. To, to pronounce with happy. Or pronounce happy with a, a loud voice. Barak means just to kneel. Takah means to strike or to drive a nail, like clapping hands. I, I don't like it when we clap in church. I'm having a problem with that. But when I did this little study yesterday, I went, okay, maybe I, I got to get to clapping in church. And I, I can see it's legal. All right, all right. <laughs> Makai, to leap or to dance. Now, I haven't danced in church yet, and I've never danced in worship, but I've moved. I mean, you know, I don't know what I would call it to the beat, but, but there's been some physical movement. Tehillah means to sing a new song. Zamar means to play an instrument. But in this passage, in, in Nehemiah 9, it's a shakak, and it means to bow down. It's a position of humility. These people, recognizing everything that God had done for them, moving them out of exile and back into the land and rebuilding their, their temple and getting a city set up and protecting it with a wall, and now we can start worshiping, we can do sacrifices. It's a group effort to boast about God's faithfulness. By the way, this word has to do with group worship, not individual. Again, in our culture, we're very individual in our worship. You know, it's me and God, but it's not really. It's us and God. And in church, that's what's supposed to happen. It's a us and thing. So we're all supposed to enter in, whether we can sing or whether we're comfortable raising our hands or, or kneeling or lying down or whatever the example of, of showing our contrite heart, 
it's a way to worship together. And what's happening is all the Levites are standing on the stairs nearby, almost like, what do they call it, antiphonal? Is it antiphonal? Am I sitting there right? When one side says one thing and when the other one says a re re response, and it goes back and forth. It was kind of like that. The Levites are praising, and then it comes over here, then it comes over here, and then the people are doing all this other stuff in between. So that's their prep work. They were getting ready to, to really uh, worship God. Then they, they give a prayer. Chapter 9 again, verse 6 through 37, and I'm not going to read it all, but I, I urge you to do so today. It's the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. And, and two other ones that are similar in length, but not quite, would have been the, the prayer in Ezra 9 and in Daniel 9. But in this, in this case, they're going to they're gonna get, what, almost 30 verses, and, and they're going to go through kind of a pattern, almost like a cycle. So I tried to encapsulate that in my notes so you could see it. So it starts off in verse 6 with a lot of adoration. Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and all praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens. You can see that it's all focused on, on acknowledgement of God as creator. He goes on and says, you made the heavens, the highest heavens, all the starry hosts, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in it. You gave life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So the first part of, of the pattern to their prayer was adoration. And then he goes in for the next two verses to talk about, well, God chose Abraham. <clears throat> and for you and I, we go, well, what's the big deal? Why, you know, why do we have to keep bringing up that, that God chose Abraham? Because in the choosing of Abraham, God was selecting a people that would be an example of how he wanted to relate to the whole earth. So by choosing a people, not because they were particularly special, but because he wanted to have an example that could, that on a daily basis could, could live out this kind of personal relationship with God that he wanted to have with men. So he talks about choosing Abraham. Then he talks about their suffering all the time they spent in Egypt. By the time you get to verse 13, you're going to see Moses crops up. He's going through the, the patriarchs of the Old Testament. He talks about how God used Moses. Then in verse 16, 17, and 18, he, he brings up, well, yeah, but you guys, we were so rebellious. We were so disobedient. Look what we did when we were in the, in the wilderness. And then in verse 19, he picks it back up and says, yeah, but God sustained us. God took care of us in the wilderness. Then in verses 22 through 25, he says, not only did he do it in the wilderness, but he sustained us while we made it into the promised land. So things are looking up. But by the time you get to verse 26, the cycle is turning again. And he starts talking about these rebellious, disobedient ancestors who didn't do what they were supposed to do. Now, what made me think of the cycle uh, in the book of Judges is this passage. There's this, we're doing good. God's wonderful. We're doing all right. We do terrible. Oh, my. God shows up does good, we repent, we're doing better, oh, then we're rebellious again. Here we go again. That's exactly what the book of Judges is all about. There is the goodness of God on display, people rise in rebellion, God sends some sort of corrective something another to discipline them, they cry out for blessing, please deliver us, God responds with the goodness and deliverance and hit repeat. And it goes over and over and over. And rather than make fun of them, think about it for yourself. How, how's that cycle work for you? 
I mean, it works for me. That's, that's almost a, a mirror image of, of, of too often my relationship with the Lord. I'm, I'm rolling along. I'm honoring Him. I'm recognizing His goodness. I get a little selfish. I start turning my attention to myself. Somehow I find myself in, in disobedience or rebellion. I cry out to God, please be merciful. He is. He provides some sort of deliverance from that. I get up. I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. And I start to cycle again. And that's what's happening, why their prayer reflects that. By the time they get down to verses 32 through 37, it's all about the rebellious past of, of the children of Israel. He's just summing it up. This is not good. This is us. Now, the chapter's not over because they're working their way to a point of decision. From chapter 9, verse 38, all the way through most of the chapter of of, of chapter 10, they're, they're getting ready. They're, they're making an agreement. They're, they're at a point of decision. Now, what they're going to do is make a binding agreement. Look at verse 38, 938. In view of all this, that's that whole prayer and all those cycles we just talked about, we're making a binding agreement. We're putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals on it. Remember I told you back then, if they were going to make an agreement, they would get some sort of a parchment. They would write whatever the agreement was on the parchment. They'd roll it up. They'd tie it tight with rope or string. They'd pour either wax or some clay. And a signet ring would get out, and they'd put it in the signet ring. And then they'd go bury that in a jar. So it's like taking it down to the courthouse and registering your deed, right? It's now an official whatever. They're wanting to do that. They want a point of decision. We're going to serve Yahweh. And we're not going to do all that stuff that we got accused of when you first got here. Intermarrying, not doing their finances right, failure to honor the feasts and festivals, not paying attention to the Sabbath. They're saying, nope, we're done with that. Here's, here's our decision. Now, it's interesting, the word for covenant, this binding agreement, this solemn pledge, it, it actually is two words in Hebrew, karath and berith. Karath simply means to cut, to cut in two. Um, you got a piece of bread, you cut it in two, there's two halves, there it is, karath. Now, berith means uh, a serious agreement. So it's a serious agreement based on cutting in two. And remember I told you about in Genesis 15, when God selects Abraham and he says, now we're going to have a covenant between you and me and we'll do it the right way. We're going to do Karath uh, Barith. And he went and had him get a couple of turtle doves. I don't remember exactly. A goat, two goats, a sheep, whatever. He got some animals. They brought them, they slaughtered them, and they cut them in two and put them on two different sides of a walkway. So a piece of sheep over here and a piece of sheep over here, a piece of blah, 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 then two birds on the other side. Now in a normal uh, covenant, both parties would walk down through the middle as a sign to say, if I don't keep my, my part of the bargain, that's what you can do to me. Down the middle. And both parties would walk through and then the covenant was made. But in Genesis 15, God puts Abraham to sleep and he and he alone walked down the middle. So the great promise and the great covenant between God and his people is not based on two people. It's only based on the merits of Christ. So when we when we come to this passage in, in Nehemiah, they're going to have this binding agreement. That's what they're doing. They're putting the animals out. They're walking down through it. They put it in writing and they sealed it. It's a big deal. We're not going to act this way anymore. 
And then they start to make commitments in chapter 10. Look at verse 30, chapter 10, verse 30. So they've had this binding agreement, this decision. Now, now we're going to be kind of specific about the commandments or the commitments, I should say. So verse 30, he says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us. Okay, we're not going to intermarry anymore. Done. That's finished. We're not having that happen. Verse 31, when the neighboring people bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we're not buying it. We're not buying anything. We're not selling anything. We're going to honor the Sabbath. Okay, good. Verse 32, we assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. We have neglected the temple and all the worships that are associated with that, all the sacrifices. We assume responsibility for caring for the house of God. We're going to put money in the pot so the Levites and the priests have what they need so the sacrifices can go forward. Verse 35, look at this one. We also assume responsibility for bringing into the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crop and every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. This is a tithe, and it goes on through the rest of the, that passage, verse 38, a priest descending from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. The word tithe just means a tenth. So they say, we're not going to neglect the things of God. We will bring in our proper tithe. Now just think about that. We're not going to intermarry. We're, we're not going to buy and sell on Sabbath. We're going to assume responsibility for the house of God, and we're going to pay all of our due for the Levites and the priests by making sure our tithe is in, one-tenth of our income. Now, back then, because of all the various kinds of gifts that they give, they gave, a really good Israelite might be giving up to 40-42% of his income, counting all the sheep, counting all the stuff that he gives. A tithe is just a tenth. And yet we, in our culture, go crazy over the idea of tithing. Because we forget it's all his anyway. He gave us 90%. We scoot 10% back across the table just as an act of our, of our worship. And they made sure to do that. So those were their commitments. Now in chapter 10, verse 39, they're going to they're gonna express a resolve. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, of new wine and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the singers stay. And their solution, their resolve in verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. We're, we're, we're done with that. We are going to step to the plate and do what's right. In the book of Haggai, in verse number, chapter 1, verse 3, the prophet Haggai, who is a contemporary of Nehemiah, in, in his preaching there, he says, why, why, why is it that you're living, he's going to, to the people, you're living in paneled houses, meaning it's not just dirt clods, you know, not just a, a clay uh, house, that you've actually gotten wood and put it up like paneling? Why is it that you're living in paneled houses, but the house of God is in disrepair? And, and, and they're, they're saying, no, that's not happening anymore. We have a resolve. We will not neglect the house of our God. It's an astonishing two chapters of their commitment to do what's right. They're not just using words. They're actually performing some stuff. So I asked my same question, which I ask every week. What's, what's now? Or what? So what, rather? 
so we understand all that, what, what's the deal? The children of Israel, they got serious about serving the Lord. It wasn't, it wasn't a, um, a birthright. Well, I'm a Christian because my parents were. It's not because I live in America. Well, isn't everybody in America a Christian? You know, I, I'm taking serious my responsibility to serve the Lord. They prepared their hearts with action, not with just words. They went through their lives and said, this has got to start and this has got to stop. They reviewed the faithfulness of God in prayer, and then they made serious commitments. Serious ones. I want you to look at a New Testament uh, parallel to that. We're back to the book of James, and look at chapter 4. And, and hopefully this will bring a full circle for our minds and hearts. Four, book of James, chapter 4, verse uh, 4. <clears throat> you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? If everything about our world entices us, if we're happiest when we've got all the latest and greatest, then something's wrong with us. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? The Holy Spirit doesn't go, oh, I wish I had that house. Oh, I wish I had that car. Oh, I wish our family could go there. Oh, I wish I had health. But verse 6 says, but he gives us more grace. And that's why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. That's where the sackcloth and the, and the dirt come in. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and what will happen? He will lift you up. I, I, I think the illustration now of an Old Testament passage in the book of Nehemiah is really clear. Our lives should be focused on the Lord, not on where our kids go to school, or which dance class comes when and during the week, or the thousand other minor priorities that we crowd out, loud, loud to crowd out our worship for the Lord. It should be premier first on the top if that means we got to get up early or stay up late or rearrange things so that we can find the proper time but if not we're going to fall into the same habits they did and it will take a great you know revolt uh, uh, maybe 70 years in exile you know to get our attention I'm, I'm really trying to help you see that serving the Lord is so much more than just sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning or, or opening your, your phone to, to a reading app and reading three verses. It is a commitment. It's a commitment with, with, with incredible consequences. Walking down through those animals is, is a statement of, you can kill me off if I don't, if I don't keep my commitments. So make them lightly, but make them often, and let them count. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Nehemiah and the clarity of these two chapters of what you had them do. They were, they were brought to the place where they could do that freely. And I know the rest of the chapters, I know they fall again. But at least at this point, they're making every effort to put you 
on the throne and in the center part of their hearts. So I ask you to help us to put you on the throne and in the center part of our hearts. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So before we run off to, to breakfast, 